Class 5 Medical Process What course to do next after flight school Tips on adapting to a tropical climate And what does pilot monitor mean for NAVAIDs? All these questions are more coming right up, so strap in and let's get into it. G'day everyone, welcome to episode 114 of the Flight Training Australia podcast. From Sydney to Shark Bay, Shoot Harbour to Sunrise Dam and everywhere in between, this is the podcast dedicated to flight training and aviation in Australia and beyond. I'm your host Trent Robinson and I'm delighted to welcome to you to yet another bumper episode. Well, big news today is uh, it's good timing for the podcast that the Class 5 medical self-declaration process has commenced. It's uh, been a long time in the making and uh, AOPA has been working very hard on that and many others uh, campaigning to make it a reality, something RAOS has done for some time. Uh, it's been done in the UK and in America and yeah look I'd be interested to know what you all think about it and uh, how you feel about it it is quite restricted a lot more so than the uh, systems overseas but I guess it'll be a, a trial process to see how it all goes and I'm sure as time goes on and better understandings of everything happens it'll be more relaxed and um yeah, you can't get it though. It's not for people who can't hold a class two medical. It's a self-declaration process, but you need to meet strict protocols. You can't have any uh, medical health issues and that sort of thing. So it's not a can't hold any other medical. So this is the last line of defense sort of thing. You still need to be medically fit and uh, capable. You will be restricted, however, in what you can fly and... Uh, it's a ten dollar application fee. There's online training, and it'll be uh, yeah interesting to see how many people take it up. You can only carry one passenger and different bits and pieces. I'm not going to go into the whole lot right now, but uh, if you want to know more, the you can find it on the Casa website. The link is on the uh, website and on the episode description. You can click on that, and that'll take you to the page. The process will essentially be, like I said, it'll go take you into your MyCASA portal and you need to go into Aviation Works. And Aviation Works, for those who probably never used it before, especially private pilots and the like, it's a it's CASA's online little exam uh, learning centre. So there'll be a 60-minute uh, or so online training course at the self-declaration process and then the $10 fee. And uh, you should get the medical within, I don't know, Probably not long. Cass will just have to review it, I guess, but I'm sure it'll be fairly quick. All right. So, yeah, if you do do it, let me know how it all goes and whether you think it's going to be useful. All right. Um, I posted on Instagram the other day for a bunch of questions and a thank you to everyone uh, who got about over 20 responses, which was fantastic. And I'm not going to quite get to all of them today, but we'll cover the rest off very, very soon. But uh, I've probably covered this topic multiple times and I still see the question asked on Facebook forums and Facebook groups and that sort of stuff. 
And look, it really is a really difficult decision. And that is, what do I do after flight school? And it's an interesting question and it's an interesting viewpoint that I'm potentially going to present in a minute, um, depending on what your ultimate goals are, of course, and that has to factor in. So just to summarize what I've covered in other episodes, and again, you can look at all the uh, learning to fly and planning your career episodes there. There's a four-part series that I did um, where I sort of go into this in more detail, but instrument, instructor, or just stick with a CPL and go for it. What would you do? It really does matter on a few things. First of all, your personal situation. If you're free, you're not uh, got a partner that's uh, restricting your movements, family, um, you can really do whatever you want to do, which is good. It really just comes down to financial outlay and uh, relocating and all that sort of thing. So instrument or instructor or GA, what do you do? Look, it doesn't really matter. If you've got a commercial license, you can go. That is enough to get um, up north or uh, wherever you're located to find work. Right? Anywhere from Broome right across through to Cairns and um, there was a number of locations. But anyway, you can go and get a job. Having an instrument rating is not going to make a big difference. You're not going to use it. You can use the the features of the instrument rating being the opportunity to fly at night that can extend your operations. Some companies do like that. So a night rating at the bare minimum instrument rating, it will have use. You're just not going to use, in, use it in full um, straight away. As far as instructor goes, you would tend to do that if you're more looking at staying in a, a major city centre or wherever there's a, a training school nearby that might have an opportunity. Now, if they train you, there's usually more chance of them taking you on because they've trained you their way. You essentially graduate standardised and ready to go. You've usually used that school's briefings and everything else. So there's a lot of benefit from that. but. It's not a guarantee either. It doesn't mean you're going to get a job there. So you've really got to just really think about um, what the opportunities are there. And it might not be like, you know, I didn't get employed for six months after I finished my instructor rating just because I went into winter and there just wasn't going to be enough flying uh, to justify doing that. So that was fine, but I didn't do it with the promise of a job. I did it because I wanted to have the, the, the skill set to provide for an opportunity when it came up. That's always going to be in it to win it. As far as coming up here and things that you can do. Now, here's a little controversial bit. When you're coming up to Darwin, it's sort of a first job place, sort of not. There's a lot of companies that you need upwards of four or 500 hours, and this is typically based around uh, contracts and things that those operators have. That aside, <clears throat> the more experience that you've got, the better it's going to suit you. And, and this is the controversial bit I was talking about with integrated versus non-integrated training. Because if you think about it, if you've done an integrated course, now I know they're not all spot on 150 hours, but let's just say for argument's sake, 150 hours, and uh, you're up against someone who's done a 200-hour course, well, you're 50 hours behind now. All right, so you're going to then have to go out of pocket um, to pay for more command time and get more experience to try and 
meet the non-integrated application job market. So, yeah, how's that for controversy? <laughs> it's sort of something that's becoming uh, more relevant lately. And the funny thing is, you know, the 200-hour syllabus, non-integrated training is all GST-free. You're doing non, you're doing an integrated course, having to pay for extra command hours, which GST would be applicable to. So it is costing you more overall. Um, I know that's just one element of the whole thing, but worth thinking about. But if you're going to do it, 200 series time is is definitely the the benchmark. And I am ridiculously busy doing a lot of that now with my sort of GA integration course. And that course is all about, uh, or transition course, sorry, it's all about transitioning from a flight school mentality uh, to GA. And the biggest difference I'm finding at the moment is if you think about it, like I said, you're just doing 70, 70 odd to 100 hours of command time, but it really is so sheltered in a way. The school will say that you can only go solo when the clouds at a certain height, the winds at a certain strength, conditions are a certain suitability. And, you know, I've been flying with a couple of people lately who've just never actually been flying by themselves just cause it's always because of of uh, a training flight or whatever else they've never taken their friends and just gone for a fly and just dealt with all the the natural things that come up <laughs> when you go flying and that's a big thing so even if if nothing else just get some friends together split the cost go for a fly even if they don't split the cost you pay for it whatever you got to do um but you know get them to buy your lunch at least. But you go fly without someone else telling you you can or you can't. You need to look at the weather. You need to make sure the weight and balance is okay. You've got to work out where your fuel's coming from and how much you need and all that sort of stuff. You need to go flying and, and see what you're presented with and deal with the the strange requests from ATC or the airspace restrictions that haven't been there before or whatever it is. All right, that, that experience is hands down the best thing you can do if you're, if you're going to do anything. Get some experience outside of a flight school environment, all right? So anything that helps you with that, Lazo training, if you're coming up here, again, as I say, you can do it. It's not crucial, but it all helps. Um, and, you know, I offer that, tying it into Darwin familiarization, getting just used to Darwin airspace, air traffic control, gravel strips, all the little things that some of you don't get exposure to. And uh, obviously the wet season if uh, you're up here during that particular time of year. And again, if not the dry season, it's dry has got its own things with smoke and everything else. So have a look at uh, of those sort of things. But ultimately just whatever you can do that's going to make you confident and independent and, and a good safe operator is definitely going to help you out. All right. The next thing is once you do get here, how do you deal with the tropical climate? I've had a few um, fly lately that have just <laughs> nearly passed out. And, uh, yeah, it is. it can get very hot and warm, and especially if you're coming straight up here from Melbourne or Tassie or something like that where you're just not used to the hot, uh, humid conditions. It, it is. It does take a little bit to get used to. And you'll see I'm up here wearing long pants um, most of the time. Sometimes I'm in shorts. But, uh, you know, you get used to it. But there's definitely some things you can do. And the number one thing is 100% 
you must remain hydrated. Um, again, to use this situation a few weeks ago, he, uh, I asked, you know, I've got some water. He said, no, no, I'll be fine, thinking we're only going to be going for two odd hours. But what he didn't really factor in is, A, he's not used to the conditions. B, got to pull the aeroplane out of the hangar, pre-flight it, jump in. We're going to spend a bit of time on the ground because it's all new, so we're going slow. It's no real airflow, so it's hot. And we're going to spend a bit of time up high, you know, three, 4,000 feet, but the rest of the time we're going to be fairly low doing circuits and everything else. So that takes it out of you, right? Sweat is moisture. Moisture means dehydration. So you've got to have some water. You've got to have fluids, but you've also got to juggle it a little bit because there's nothing worse than drinking too much, going flying, and then busting to go to the toilet. So it very much is a balancing act and one you need to work on a little bit. You've got to watch your coffee and um, water intake. You know, when you're going to go flying, make sure it's all going to be passed before you get going. Um, that was one problem working at CareFlight. You never knew when the phone was going to ring and when you had to go somewhere. So then you just had to deal with that. But definitely um, hydration is a big thing. Your clothing, you typically won't necessarily get a huge um, a huge sort of input on what you get to wear, but most of the companies here will have uh, options of reasonably cool clothing, good shirts. You'll have uh, your pilot shirt, but you'll have another shirt to wear the rest of the time. So whilst you're doing run-ups and uh, office work and pre-flights and that sort of stuff, you'll just wear a sort of a company polo and then you get changed into your pilot shirt before uh, your passengers arrive and off you go. But being prepared also can help. Uh, pre-configuring the aircraft for takeoff, pre-loading the GPS and saving it. Uh, that all helps save time on the ground. Fly as high as you can. Obviously get up into that cooler air. All those things uh, are ways that, that can help you out a little bit. But uh, definitely stay hydrated. Uh, I've mentioned it a couple of times, but have a listen to the episode on Aqualite. It's a fantastic uh, product which contains uh, electrolytes and, and sugars and things that's going to help your body function your brain function, all that sort of stuff. Um, there's all sorts of different products on the market there, but uh, definitely having something as a supplement as well to help put back in what the sweat takes out, as they say, is a, a really good idea. I guess the other things you could do is enroll in a Bikram yoga class or something like that. And so ones like yoga in a sauna <laughs> might help you out a little bit as well. Do some flight planning and, and everything else, see how you perform there. All right, but utilize things like air conditioning and, and shade as much as you can. Keep the windows open um, until the last minute and uh, crack them open again once you land. Definitely, if you're feeling it, your passengers will be too. So they'll, they'll be very happy for that bit of fresh air also. All right. So thank you for that one. And finally, what does pilot monitored mean for NAVAIDS? So this one comes up every now and then. Um, most recently up here in Darwin, with the ILS, which is the first for me, but the ILS was pilot monitored. Um, usually NDBs and that sort of stuff are very commonly pilot monitored. And all it simply means is that NAVAIDs have a uh, essentially like a failure, an automatic detection and a failure alert that uh, lets either air services or the local um, ATC or operation know that the system's gone down. So all it's really saying is that that, method is not working and the pilots need to keep an eye on it and make sure it's working for their needs, which essentially is what we do all day, every day anyway. 
we've always got the ident monitored. We've always got the flags checked, um, that Morse code verification, all that sort of stuff. So we're pilot monitoring all the time. So it doesn't really mean anything as far as changing the way we do things. It just means that we might not get notified on a NOTAM that it's not working because the uh, authorities haven't been told themselves from the self-monitoring system. Okay. So there you go. Thank you, everyone, for your emails and uh, those messages, response to Instagram. That's fantastic. I'll do that usually once a month just to sort of see what, what what's going on, what sort of things are on your mind. So please uh, keep sending those through. Keep sending the reviews through. Really, really appreciate those as well. Apple Podcasts has all that. Um, you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts for me, even if you don't listen. I love still reading them. And, uh, of course, on Spotify, you can also give the podcast a rating um, of five stars, of course. And share it with your friends. That's the biggest thing. Um, if I can ask one thing of everybody is there's plenty of pilots out there learning, struggling, all asking the same questions. And I have answered so many of them in the podcast and I know um, from all your feedback that you're finding it incredibly useful, incredibly helpful and help me tell everyone else, get it out there. That's the main uh, main aim. Don't want anybody suffering needlessly. All right. Um, that is it for this episode. Thank you very much for listening. You know where you can find me, Patreon, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn, all there. Send me your messages, send me your emails, and I will respond to them when I can. In the meantime, looks like we're in for a bit of a wet week this week, and I'll tell you all about it next week. So until then, blue skies, remember the golden rule, aviate, navigate, communicate. Cheers, everyone.